All right, we are back. This is going to be a sandwich segment between uh, two heavyweights, uh, John Dean and Michael Rupert. I think we need a bit of a breather uh, between uh, between those two gentlemen. I want to thank, by the way, um, Francis Senecal for giving me the contact for John Dean, and also Dr. Andy for the fact that uh, he's given me Eileen Proctor, which led to a Dennis Kucinich uh, fundraiser in Los Angeles where I was able to personally contact Mike Rupert and arrange for him to come on our program um, to follow. Franz, of course, can be heard um, Monday mornings at 8.30 on, um, on KDBS. Dr. Andy is heard in this same time slot on Wednesdays, Wednesdays at 5 o'clock. And I hope that you will remember them very fondly next week during our pledge drive. All right, let's do a couple follow-ups here. Um, We talked about uh, NPR ousting Morning Edition host Bob Edwards uh, last week. We're going to continue to to follow that story. But uh, apparently, (laughs) I love this story. Apparently, after Howard Stern got sacked from a few Clear Channel stations, he argued that, well, what I did was no worse than what Oprah Winfrey did. He then posted a conversation about oral sex from an Oprah Winfrey TV show on his website, And sure enough, the FCC confirms that it's begun reviewing complaints against Oprah. All right, we talked a couple weeks ago about our doubts about these numbers that the Bush administration is generating about our so-called economic recovery. I would refer you to The Economist, April 10th, 2004 issue, where The Economist raises the very same issue. Now, The Economist is a notoriously conservative magazine, but... As a general rule, they're pretty honest, and I find that uh, their speculations on this uh, are probably a bad sign for the Bushies. Now, if today's show has a theme, or our shows usually don't have a theme, but today's might, that theme would have to be the Bush administration. Now, we reported in February that the Bush administration was criticized openly by 60 prominent scientists, many of whom have been involved in making science policy for both Republican and Democratic administrations. In a letter, this group asserted, among other things, that, quote, when scientific knowledge has been founded to be in conflict with its political goals, the administration has often manipulated the process through which science enters into its decisions, unquote. Quoting from The Economist, That letter was supported by a report from the Union of Concerned Scientists, a think tank and lobby group based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which enumerated specific instances of what it claimed was political manipulation of scientific research and information and of scientific advisory committees to the government. Discover Magazine ranked the Bush administration's manipulation of science as one of the most important science stories of 2003. The Economist notes that accusations have continued to proliferate. One of the most notorious cases since the release of that report is that of Elizabeth Blackburn, an eminent cell biologist at the University of California, San Francisco. She was fired from her position on the President's Council on Bioethics because, she claims, of her outspoken support of research on human embryonic stem cells, a promising but controversial medical technology. I promised you on this show two weeks ago that we were going to bring you someone who believes his cancer was cured and life saved. And this story is not quackery. It's real, and it's going to knock your socks off. By the way, John Dean talks about this same issue in his book and covers the topic marvelously. 
Now, the Bush administration is fighting back. On April 2nd, John Marburger, who is George Bush's science advisor, issued a strongly worded defense of the administration's science policy. He said, for instance, that an advisory group to the State Department known as the Arms Control and Nonproliferation Advisory Group had not, as the Union of Concerned Scientists report claimed, been disbanded. In actual fact, he said, the group's charter had expired and it was being reconstituted. The Economist notes, that may be what is happening, but as Richard Garwin, a physicist who chaired the board and has been an advisor to, among others, President Richard Nixon points out, Dr. Marburger neglected to mention that it has been 32 months since the charter expired and the group has still not been reconstituted. And Marburger made no defense of such things as the American Physical Society, APS, a professional organization for physicists' report that concluded that the boost phase missile defense, which is one element of the planned SDI uh, defense system by the Bush administration, would be ineffective. Now, I do recommend that you go to The Economist to round out your news, but we need not go further than the San Francisco Chronicle for an even better example than what that which The Economist has provided. Apparently, George Bush's National Forest Service has contracted with a San Francisco public relations firm to talk about the fire risks that have risen in Sierra forests since they've grown denser in the past century. This is, of course, part of Bush's plan to, quote, thin out, unquote, our national forests. In this brochure, six black and white photos span 80 years, and they appear beside descriptions of how the forests of the past had fewer trees and less underbrush, making them less susceptible to wildfires. The 1909 photo shows an open, park-like forest with large trees spaced widely apart. More trees and underbrush appear in each successive picture, 1948, 58, 68, 79, and finally a photograph thick with trees in 1989. The pamphlet reads, Today's forests, dense with green, may seem beautiful, but in fact are deadly. Our old-growth forests are choking with brush, tinder-dried debris, and dead trees which make the risk of catastrophic fire high. Of course, the Bush administration plans to go in and thin out a lot of that timber, supposedly for the benefit of the forest and all of us. However, it turns out that the 1909 photo of the Sierra Nevada does not depict natural conditions. In fact, it doesn't depict the Sierra Nevada. It was taken just after the forest had been logged, and it shows Montana. And no, I'm not kidding. The Chronicle published the photo and quoted Chad Hansen, director of the John Muir Project in Cedar Ridge in Tuolumne County, who said, I was looking at the picture and I thought it looked awful familiar. I started looking around and sure enough, the industry has used it before in Montana. It's from the Bitterroot Valley. The picture was taken after logging had occurred and most of the trees had been removed. The Forest Service spent $23,000 of your tax money to reproduce and print 15,000 copies of the brochure as part of the Forest for a Future campaign. There is an accompanying article below this uh, fabulous Sierra quote-unquote forest photo 
titled Bush Accord Could Revive Timber Wars, which, um, which is also worth going into, but we don't have time today. It notes that logging is to double on federal lands in the Pacific Northwest. We're going to talk to somebody from the National Resources Defense Council about that issue, but uh, certainly we won't get to that um, today. And one final article in this segment, the New York Times reported on April 10th that the U.S. Department of Agriculture refused to allow a Kansas beef producer to test all of its cattle for mad cow disease, saying such sweeping tests were not scientifically warranted. Under a 1913 law called the Virus Serum Toxin Act, the department decides where cattle can be tested and for what. Now, this private producer wanted to test all of its cattle to prove to consumers in other countries that there was no way that these cattle could have mad cow disease. Consumer groups accuse the Department of Agriculture of bending to the will of the beef industry. They say producers do not want the expense of proving that all cattle are safe, and they fear the damage to meat sales that could result if more cases of mad cow were found. Now, it's quite possible that, uh, you know, that we can ensure that our beef supplies are safe without testing 100% of the animals. So the beef industry does have a point. But if a private producer wants to do that, to assure someone overseas that they can be absolutely certain that their meat is safe, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what capitalism and individual freedom are supposed to be all about in this country? All right, we've got a lot of ground to cover in our third segment today, so let's get out a little bit early. We look forward to uh, our talk with Michael Rupert in our third segment. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Sacramento.